Judges chapter 6. Hopefully everyone's Bible just opens to it. We've been there for a little while. So, two weeks ago, we began looking into the account of a judge named Gideon. We took last week off, but two weeks ago we began the story of Gideon. God had raised up the Midianites to come against Israel for their sin. The Midianites, then, are God's solution for Israel's sin at this time. He is using them to bring Israel low, to humble them, to remind them that they needed God and that the life that they are living right now, where they're living it according to what they think is right, is not as good as the life they would be living if they lived it for Yahweh, if they lived it for their God. And so God is going to keep the promises of the Old Covenant, and He's going to raise up another judge, and He's doing so because a better covenant is coming. A covenant that the old covenant is pointing to through shadows and types. Remember, the, the reason why they're in the land right now, the reason why God is raising up a, a judge each time they fail is because of the old covenant, because of the promises that he made in it. And so this old covenant is pointing to a better covenant in types and shadows, the new covenant, the covenant that Christ Jesus makes in his blood. The only covenant by, by, in any age by which anyone may be saved. Uh, the new covenant, or in theological language, we call it the covenant of grace. So God is going to keep his covenant promises and showing he's going to continue to show his faithfulness in this account. Now, if you remember from last time, it seems as if Israel's response to God's discipline wasn't genuine. It wasn't the type of response that, that we were talking about a Christian should have. Uh, it seems as if Israel's response to God's discipline through the Midianites is, is fake. It is worldly. It, it came across more as regret rather than repentance. It was worldly sorrow instead of godly sorrow. And so God sent a prophet so, to remind Israel why they were oppressed so severely by the Midianites. And then we read verse 11 to 16 last time to be introduced to Gideon. And we really didn't get into those, the details of that account. But we're going to start there tonight and then continue a little bit farther on into the chapter. So tonight we're going to deal with verses 11 through verse 24, building off of what we did two weeks ago. So the reading of God's word, I hope you're at Judges 6 by now. Beginning at verse 11 says, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Oprah, which belonged to Joash the Ebezerite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all the wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in his this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do, I, do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the very least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please, do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and eleven cakes from an epaph of flour. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot. 
And he brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes. And fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day, it still stands at, Op- at Oprah, which belongs to the Ibizrites. So that ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your faithfulness to your covenant to raise up someone like Gideon. And we know that you are the sovereign God and that you desire holiness and you desire justice and mercy. And we pray that you would help us to learn what it is that you're like through your word and that you would help us from that to love you more and to desire to live a life of obedience unto your glory. Turn us from living for ourselves. Turn us to seeking your honor most of all, Lord. Help us to care most about your glory. We pray that our time in your word would be beneficial and that you would grant understanding to us. We need you, God. Let us not forget that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. So the sermon for tonight, I I titled it, uh, The Deliverer Like Moses. There's, There's a lot of things that are similar between Gideon and Moses. But the main point of the text really is that the Lord is peace. And so we'll look at these things and we'll look at what it means to really think about the Lord being peace in our lives as well too. So first we see the background of the event. Uh, The prophet came and we did that last week and we were kind of left hanging at the end of verse 10. Did Israel understand the point of the prophet? Were they given understanding from God to see their sin, that their sin was the reason for the oppression that they were under? Well, we don't know about the nation of Israel as a whole. We're, not, we're just simply not told. But we're going to see a response from the person that God has decided to be the judge. We're going to see a response from Gideon that is insightful, I think, that will tell us probably how the rest of the nation was thinking as well, too. Because God has sought this person, Gideon, out. And the angel of the Lord comes and sits under what's called the terebinth at Oprah, which is owned by Gideon's dad. The terebinth, it's likely a large tree. Uh, Most commentaries said that it was probably an oak tree, which is weird. I didn't really think that there were oak trees there in that part of Canaan, the promised land. But most commentaries say that it was an oak tree. So I imagine it's probably kind of like that big oak tree that's like fenced off over by Liberty High School. Do you know the one that I'm talking about? It's a massive oak tree kind of in the neighborhood over there. It's beautiful. Maybe it was a tree, something like that. We don't know. Now, I want you to see something at this point, though, because there's something that unfolds through this story. And it's important because as Gideon understands this, it changes his perspective. All right, so the angel of the Lord comes under this big oak tree and it kind of catches Gideon by surprise. Uh, It doesn't work right away in Gideon or perfectly in the example of Gideon. He's going to do some things after this revelation that will call him to question it. But the knowledge that Gideon comes to figure out 
also doesn't always display itself perfectly in our lives either. So we don't have to be too hard on him is what I'm, is what I'm wanting to say, just because when he understands this, we'll see later on in the chapter that he kind of loses sight of it. So what I want you to see here in verse 11 is where it says, the angel of the Lord came. What stands out about the word Lord, if you're looking there in chapter 6 at verse 11? It's all capitals, okay? L is capital, O is capital, R is capital, D is capital. The whole word is capital letters here in the English. Whenever you see that in the Old Testament, it is telling you that in the Hebrew, it's the proper name of God. It is when God revealed himself to Moses in Exodus 3 and he said, I am that I am. It was, it's a form of the same word where, where we get the Hebrew words for I am. It is in English, um, Yahweh. In the Hebrew, it's what's called the tetragrammaton, which means it's four letters. It's Y-H-W-H. There's no vowels in the Hebrew language. So when, we translated, when they translated the Hebrew to English, they put vowels in there because that helps us to be able to read it. But it, the way that we believe you pronounce it is Yahweh. And so every time you see L-O-R-D, Lord, all caps in the Old Testament, you can say Yahweh. You can think Yahweh. But the interesting thing in our text is that every time you see the word Lord here in our text with Gideon, it's not always capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Sometimes it's capital L, then lowercase O-R-D, and then one time it's simply all lowercase Lord, L-O-R-D. So we'll look at what's happening when we come to those parts, as it has to do with Gideon's discovery, which happens to be a discovery that is essential to us as well. So let's, let's look and see what, hap- what is happening here. A prophet came and exposed Israel's sin and their false repentance. And an angel of the Lord seeks out Gideon, who is obviously the judge that God is raising up in this epic. But what does Gideon think? Does Gideon think that the prophet... Uh, came and spoke the truth? Did he convict Gideon? Does Gideon take the words of the prophecy and consider them and then turn from his sin? Does Gideon feel conviction? Well, we see that the angel of the Lord finds Gideon who is hard at work preparing for the next Midian invasion, right? he's, He's getting ready for the next raid. And so he's beating out wheat in a wine press so the Midians wouldn't find it. You know, typically you wouldn't beat out meat in a uh, wheat, excuse me, in a, in a wine press. You go beat out the wheat in the field. He's doing it in the wine press because he's scared that the Midianites are going to come. And they're going to take it. Remember, that's what we, they, we, we learned that the Midianites were doing in the beginning of chapter 6. Now, this is a man who is, is hiding right now. And the prophet that God sent to Israel after they cried out to God, he didn't mention anything about their deliverance, did he? If you remember that from two weeks ago, he just simply told them what their sin was. He said that, that he is the God who delivered them, but they're in sin because they feared the gods of the Amorites. And he didn't tell them that he was going to deliver them or anything like that. He just pointed out their sin. And then we read in verse 11 that the angel of the Lord seeks out Gideon and tells him, Lord, all caps again, he tells him that the Lord is with him. And this angel, and by the way, angel simply means messenger. And angelic beings certainly deliver messages, by the way. So there's a kind of an overlap there. But this angel tells Gideon that he is a mighty man of valor. 
this man who is hiding his supplies. Okay, he, he's, not, doesn't, he's not acting like a mighty man of valor, right? Not, not right now, at least. So let's note Vidian, uh, Gideon's response. Excuse me. It's verse 13. He says here, And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? And were all of his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. It's very clear what Gideon thinks, isn't it? There's no doubt about it. He's under the impression that the Lord has forsaken him. Now, does this sound like someone who heard the prophet's message to Israel earlier and is repentant? It doesn't. It doesn't sound like that to me. He's questioning if the Lord, again, all caps, he's talking about God here, is actually with him. Now, number one, any believer should know that the Lord is with him. That is the promise that we all have right now, that if you are trusting Christ right now, the Lord is with you. That is a promise from Scripture. It is a promise from Jesus himself. We never actually even need to prayerfully ask for the Lord to be with another believer. We can call upon the promise that the person we are praying for would remember that God is with him because God has promised to be with him. But we never ever actually need to pray that the Lord be with a certain person if that person is in fact a believer. Do you remember what Jesus says in Matthew 28 at the end of the Great Commission? At the end of the Great Commission, the last verse in Matthew 28 in Matthew's Gospel, he says, Behold, I am with you always till the end of the age. So Jesus himself says, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And it's even more poignant because of the fact that in just a couple weeks after that time, Jesus is going to ascend into heaven. And he's saying to the apostles and to his disciples there at the end of Matthew that he is going to be with them always. So every person who is saved should know that God is with us, that Christ Jesus is with us always. Always means always, right? Not, not when things are going good for you, not when you're living your best holy life, but always. Now, that's got to be the case unless Christ is a liar, and he's not. Now, it's certainly possible for a believer to forget that God is with them always, that Christ is with them always, and perhaps that's because there's some indulging of sin that's going on in your life, and so you forget that the Lord is with you, and most likely, probably, if you're indulging some sin, you don't want to think that the Lord is with you, because you don't want the Lord to really be aware of that, although you know in your heart that he is. But the fact is certain that God is always with us. Remember, our bodies are a temple for the Lord. We read in the letter to the Corinthians even, and a temple that uh, is being built up in the Lord that unites us to one another and to God himself. So we know that God doesn't change. And so if it's true that believers in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, have the promise that Jesus is always with them, we should also know then that the God of the Bible who doesn't change was with believers in the Old Covenant because people in the Old Covenant who were saved were saved by virtue of the New Covenant, which again is the covenant of grace. Let me say that again. We know, we should also know that the God who was with believers always 
in the Old Covenant as well because people in the Old Covenant were saved by virtue of the New Covenant, which is the covenant of grace. So that right there should be enough. But Gideon should have known that God was, in fact, still with him despite what was happening with the Midianites, even because of the Old Covenant. I mean, the whole reason that they are in the land they're in right now is because of God's promise to be with them, to dwell with them, to keep the promises that he made with them. And the Midianites are simply the Lord's discipline for their sin upon his people. But the Old Testament itself is filled with the language of God being with his people as well. Consider Leviticus 25, 23. There it says, The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me. Psalm 23, 4, the popular psalm. It says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. And your rod and staff, they comfort me. So, so Gideon, even though they were under the discipline of the Lord, he should have known that the Lord was with him, especially because here's the angel of the Lord telling him so. So Gideon's in the wrong here. But thanks be to God that this is here for us so that we can remember that if our faith is in Christ, who he is and what he's done, we can be sure that he is with us. No matter what is going on, we don't have to be clever or powerful in ourselves. Excuse me. We need to only be faithful to what he reveals to us in his word. And I mentioned this last time, but it's worth mentioning one, once more again. The fact that Yahweh goes to Israel upon the pretense of false repentance on their part And now that we see that he chooses a man to be a judge who calls into question the fact that God is even with him, an unlikely hero, because actually God is the hero, right? It shows us quite clearly that God's grace precedes repentance. This is is big. I hope that you see that. It shatters any system of merit when it comes to God's favor. The fact that God's grace precedes repentance. It means that you don't need to repent before God is gracious to you. Because at, at that point, like how much repentance would it require? I and mean, we're talking about a holy God here. If God required you to repent before he was gracious to you, how much repentance could, would that take? More than any of us could actually muster. God is a holy God. It'd be infinite because God is infinite. It wouldn't, ha- it wouldn't happen, exactly. Uh, Thanks be to God, though, that's not how it works. You see, if you have a desire to repent, number one, you know you're commanded in God's word to do so. But if you have the desire in your heart, in your soul, then you should do it. it. It means that likely God has given to you grace, that he was gracious to you, so you should act on it. Repent from your sin, trust in Christ, commit yourself to live for him because his grace precedes your ability. But if you have the desire, it must mean that God was giving you grace first. Now what I want to do with the rest of our time is notice how the text unfolds in the interaction between Gideon and the angel of the Lord. We're going to consider who actually is the angel of the Lord. Does the text tell us or do we need to consider other examples in Scripture? And then also this realization that Gideon comes to through a test, which this realization is something that I want all of us to know personally as well. And so we can look at it right now, actually. It's in our, the last verse of our text. So look down at verse 24, or on the next page, if you're, it's like my Bible. Gideon builds an altar to the Lord and calls it, The Lord is Peace. 
All right, in verse 24, the Lord is peace. The Lord gives peace. He establishes peace. He grants peace to us. But even greater and even better, the Lord is peace. It is, you know, if, it is a comfort to know. What does it mean to say that, that the Lord is peace? It is a, is a comfort to know that God is sovereign, that you don't have to worry, that no matter what's going on, no matter how insurmountable the trial before you, the tragedy that is before you, how, how heavy it is on your heart, that the fact that the Lord is peace is a comfort to us. It means that we don't have to worry, that we don't have to be anxious, that we don't have to fear. And if you have the Lord, then regardless of what is happening in your life, peace is available to you. It's extended to you because the Lord has extended himself to you. God bless you. Let's turn our attention back to verse 12, okay? Because Gideon has to arrive at this realization. So we're going to try to track with him as he figures it out. So back to verse 12, because that is where this interaction between the angel of the Lord and Gideon begins. This is interesting on a couple of levels, I think. Uh, number one, Gideon reminds us a lot of, a lot of, in a lot of ways, like Moses. Moses was used to deliver Israel from Egypt. Gideon's going to be used by God to, be, to deliver Israel from the Midianites. Both are types of the deliverance that we have from our sin in Christ. But both Gideon and Moses were much less than Christ. Christ Jesus was humble, yet he is the victorious God-man, and there wasn't any doubt in him at all. But in Moses and in Gideon, there is doubt. Now, there's a humility in both of them as well, too, but it's also mingled with doubt. The sort of humility that was in Christ, there wasn't any doubt in it. And we saw this about um, Gideon already in verse 12 in his response to the angel of the Lord. But the response to Moses, or the contrast to Moses, doesn't just stop there. The Lord has confidence in Gideon just like he did in Moses. It was Moses that the Lord chose after all, but it's not as if there was something in Moses or Gideon, but it's simply the Lord in them that causes God to act this way. And so the angel of the Lord calls Gideon a mighty man. He says that Gideon not only can, but that he will save Israel in his might. God is sending him. And actually, it says, do not I send you there in verse 14? So it's the angel of the Lord who is sending him. That's a clue. And more on that in a moment. Uh, then Gideon responds by saying his clan is the weakest. How could he do it? He's, this is the weakest clan. Of all the clans in Israel, Gideon says that his is the weakest. He just can't do it. He's just like Moses, right? Remember Moses? He just couldn't speak well enough. He can't be the mouthpiece for the Lord to the Egyptians. He couldn't, he couldn't talk well enough. He needed someone else to come help him. That was the point of humility for Moses. Gideon is that his clan is the least. He just doesn't believe the angel of the Lord at this point, and so he asks for a sign. And this is the first sign that he asks for. He's going to need another one after this, uh, the, famous, the famous fleece one, but he needs a sign at this point as well. So the sign takes place in verse, verses 17 to 21, and basically what happens is he gets some meat, he gets some broth, and he makes this meal, and he puts it on, on a rock, and then he dumps the broth on top of it so that it's all wet, and the angel of the Lord sticks out his staff and he touches it and fire comes up from the rock. Bless you. Uh, fire comes up from the rock and consumes everything. 
It just burns it. So fire doesn't come out of a wet rock ever, right? This is a, a miracle that the angel of the Lord does. It's a sign that affirms to Gideon that what the angel of the Lord, or with this person, is true. Something that's very similar with Baal, right? Where, ba- where Baal, um, and Baal is the god of the area right now. We'll see that in the next section. Um, but yeah, with Elijah, when he has the altar and they pour like the 12 buckets of water on it and God rains down fire and, and Elijah mocks them at that point. So maybe we'll talk about that a little bit next week, actually, because it does fit. But Gideon reminds us a lot of Moses, because remember, God did a sign for Moses as well, too. Remember, he had him put his hand in his, in his uh, shirt and they pulled it out and it was leprous. And then he would put it back in and the leprosy was gone. And that was a sign that God used to help him be ready to know that God was going to actually uh, use him. So one commentator says this about the contrast between Gideon and Moses. It says, The command and the promise made Gideon aware of the real character of his visitor. And yet, like Moses, from a sense of humility or a shrinking at the magnitude of the undertaking, he excused himself from entering on the enterprise. And even though assured that with divine aid, he would overcome the Midianites as easily as if he were but one man, he still hesitates and wishes to be better assured that the mission was really from God. He resembles Moses also in the desire for a sign. And in both cases, it was the rarity of revelations and such periods of general corruption that made them so desirous of having the fullest conviction and being addressed by a heavenly messenger. The request was reasonable, and it was graciously granted. And, and so it was, right? He asked for a sign. The angel of the Lord gave him a sign. And then the angel of the Lord vanishes from his sight. The fire comes up, it consumes it, and then boom, poof, he's gone at that point. Well, let's think about that. I didn't realize you had that mask on your face. Um, There's actually two things he comes to understand here. He finally, after all of this and seeing this first sign, he realizes who he's talking to here. So let's back up a little bit so you can see this unfold because this character, the angel of the Lord, shows up in Scripture more than just here. And as you're reading the word, you'll see it more, you'll see him more and more, especially in the Old Testament, that is. And so we should understand what the Bible is talking about when it says the angel of the Lord. Back to verse 12, okay? The angel of the Lord, Lord is all caps again. So it's the angel of Yahweh. He appears to Gideon and he tells him that the Lord, all caps, is with him. But look at how Gideon responds. It's, if it pleases my Lord, it says, please my Lord, Lord is all lowercase letters, no caps. When you see lowercase L-O-R-D, that's not the tetragrammaton. It's the word Adonai, and it means Lord, as it's rightly translated here, which is a title of respect, but it's much different than capital L-O-R-D, which is Yahweh. The tense that the word is in Hebrew is the reason as to why it's all lowercase in our English Bibles. That means that, and I don't want to get too technical here because it's not important, but there's different tenses for, for Hebrew words. And the, the word Adonai here is in a, in a tense that is a common tense. So if you have this word Adonai, that's a respectful term in, in the first place. This is the lowest way to use it. So he's talking to the angel of the Lord, the angel of Yahweh, L-O-R-D, all caps, and he calls him 
Lord, little Lord, common. No, no, no. You would want to call your master something better than this, which we'll see that in a second, even. This is less than. This is not. This is not a a rude comment, but it's not understanding who he's talking to. Clearly, you got something, Clint. Sir, yeah, someone you don't know at all. You have no real respect for. You, you, you know. Wow, all <laughs> You got something, Clint? We don't know at this point what he thinks really. I don't, we don't know if he really thinks this is a messenger from God. I mean, I guess this person is saying the Lord will be with you. So he says that. So maybe he has that. But I mean, the, the interaction at this point is, is almost shocking when you, when you see the rest of the story, when you know the rest of the story at least. So it's the least special way you can use the word Adonai at least, the lowest form of respect for the word. So... You see what that tells us right away is that, that Gideon kind of actually doesn't have a clue as to what's going on here right now. The angel of the Lord is standing before him. And perhaps, you know, Gideon barely even looks at him. Perhaps he just keeps on beating the wheat in the wine press and he's not even really acknowledging what is happening here at this point. He continues to sift wheat and grumble and complain about his situation and the situation of the people. Then Gideon Three times over, the, this next verse uses the proper name of God, Yahweh, to essentially say, where is he? Where is the Lord, capital L-O-R-D? Where is Yahweh? He's forsaken us. Look at the trouble we're in. Where is he? In just one verse, he uses the name of the Lord three times. And try to imagine the craziness of this. It's the angel of the Lord, of Yahweh, standing right there talking to him. The one who represents the Lord to this man right now is hearing Gideon deny the goodness of Yahweh. And now it gets kind of interesting. Verse 14 says, And the Lord, all caps, turned to him and said, Notice, it doesn't say the angel of the Lord at this point. It's just, And the Lord turned and said, What is that? What happens now? Did the angel of the Lord leave? Now announced the Lord himself here? That can't be it because verse 20 and 21 and 22 all mention the angel of the Lord again. So I thought perhaps maybe there is the angel of the Lord there and the Lord himself is there possibly, right? Perhaps there's the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, and then this angel, excuse me, angel of the Lord there as well. But that actually doesn't make sense either because all of the language, the tense, the tense of all the words is showing us that this is a one-to-one conversation. It's not a one-to-two conversation. So what do we have here? The angel of the Lord is what is called a Christophany. It is the Lord himself and specifically a pre-incarnate son of God. So when it says the angel of the Lord here, it's not meaning an angel like a messenger, or excuse me, it's not meaning an angel like a seraphim or a cherubim, a spirit being that is used by God to accomplish his will. It's speaking a messenger. It's using angel in the sense of a messenger, one who brings a message. And specifically, this angel of the Lord is a pre-incarnate son of God. Matthew Henry says this, Pastor Matthew Henry He says, the person that gave him the commission was an angel of the Lord. It should seem not a created angel, but the Son of God himself, the eternal eternal word, the Lord of the angels, who then appeared upon some great occasions in human shape. Like I said, there's multiple occasions which he does this. 
as a prelude, or a prelude, I should say, says the learned Bishop Patrick, to what he intended in the fullness of time when he would take our nature upon him, as we say, for good and all. This angel is here called Yahweh, the incommunicable name of God, verse 14 and 16. And he said, I will be with thee. So, so why God the Son? And why not God the Father or God the Spirit? It is the Son who mediates between God and man. Not the Father or the Spirit. The Son mediates between mankind and the one God who is three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And as Matthew Henry says, and I said earlier, you see him numerous times in the Old Testament. But it gets more interesting still. Note verse 15. This is Gideon talking, and now, after the text, removes any doubt about, or he, about who he's considering, who he's actually speaking to Gideon. Look at verse 15. It says, And he said to him, Please, Lord, capital L-O-R-D, how can I save Israel? It, this is, that's Gideon, and it is the Lord himself that, and Gideon responds, and he says, please, Lord, with a capital L. Now, it's the same Hebrew word as the all lowercase version, but its tense has changed. There's something that Gideon understands now, perhaps. The word Adonai is not in a common tense, but it's in what's called the proper tense. It's in an emphatic use of the word. So Gideon's disposition is changing now, okay, based upon the response from the angel of the Lord, or just simply the Lord right before that. And then verse 16, once again, no mention of the angel of the Lord. just says, and the Lord, all caps, said to him. It's the Lord, it's Yahweh. And Gideon believes him, kind of, at this point. He wants to see a sign. So he, he, see, he alludes to say that he's believing him, doesn't he? He says, if now I have found favor in your eyes, show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Who's the you? He, he's thinking that this is not just a person, a normal person. He's thinking that this is someone special, someone with power, but he still doesn't quite get it. He still doesn't understand that he's in the presence of Yahweh himself, specifically the Son, the Son of God. Now, he wants to see a sign, and so he goes and gets a gift. And we talked about the sign that is performed already, but look down at verse 20. It says, there is something different now. And now the angel of God said to him, that's the first time that's been used here in our text. The word for God is not Adonai. It's not in this point Yahweh. It's Elohim. It's a title that is plural in its tense, and it refers to beings in, in the heavenly realm. God is not a name, right? It's a title. Here, here is what this means. The Bible is wanting us to know here and now, way before we even get to the New Testament, though we need the New Testament to understand this rightly, it's wanting us to know right now that the Son, the mediator, the angel of the Lord, the one who comes down at certain points in the Old Testament to deliver a message to people from, as, as the herald of God himself, is actually God as well. The two terms are used interchangeably, the angel of the Lord, the angel of God. It's wanting us to understand that this being is God actually as well. Elohim and Yahweh. And remember, we've talked about this before, Yahweh doesn't simply mean the Father. I know that that's kind of what we think sometimes, that Yahweh means the Father. It's not. Yahweh is the proper name of God. God is properly Father, Son, and Spirit. 
one being three persons. It, it, is in, it can be in reference to the Son as it must be here as the context shows us. And then God does something that only God can do. He causes a fire to start out of nothing on a wet rock and it consumes the gift. Verse 21, look at verse 21. Now it's back to the angel of the Lord. Okay, The angel of Yahweh, that same title. And then also in verse 22, and then here's where Gideon gets it. This is when Gideon's eyes are opened. Gideon finally addresses him correctly in verse 22. Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord and Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, O capital L, lowercase O-R-D, all caps God. In other words, alas, O Adonai Yahweh. Here, God is from the, is from the word Yahweh, same word as, as Lord. He's saying he gets it. The one he merely referred to as lowercase Lord and the Lord, capital L, Adonai, this one is Yahweh. This one who's before him is God. He must have been a wreck. He, you have to think that a great fear would come upon you at that point. That you've just been saying, oh, the Lord has forsaken us. Where is he? And here's the Lord actually standing in front of you right now. Right here. What would happen? He deserved death, but thankfully God is faithful and gracious. And so the Lord communicates to him. He reassures him at this point. I don't know if he's back there or if it's just a, a voice he hears or what, because it says at that point, and the Lord says to him, verse 23, all caps, Lord, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. And I want you all to realize this. Those are the options that you have before you when it comes to God. Those those are the two options that you have before you when it comes to you and God. You will either die. God will be the one who destroys you himself. And it's an everlasting destruction. It's It's not just a destroy and then you cease to exist. But it's an eternal destruction. Or... God will say to you, peace, shalom, you will not die, you will live forever. And why is that? It's because the Lord, all caps, the Son of God, acted as mediator between you and God, just as he did for Gideon here. But more specifically, this Lord died for you. He went to the cross for you. Plus, he also lived for you. He lived a holy and a righteous life so that at that the resurrection, he could accredit to you and to I and to all who believe through faith his very own righteousness. And then you may have peace. Peace no matter what is going on in your life, no matter what is before you, because you know that God is for you. Just like he was saying he was here, he was for Gideon here. Gideon gets this now. You see that. He builds an altar and he calls it the Lord is peace. And when this book was written, it was still standing there at that time. It's gone now, I'm sure. But we have something even better. Our peace. Christ Jesus himself. The Lord is peace. He ever lives to make intercession for us. And where is he now? We read in the book of uh, the letter to the Hebrews. He's at the right hand of the Father, mediating for us, living to make intercession for us. He's in the throne room of heaven, making a place for us, defending us. And his spirit fills us and unites us to him and to each other. To God be the glory. Those are the revealed truths of Scripture. It's much better than an altar at some point in the promised land. He's, he himself is in the true promised land, the heaven, the, this tension of it where it's going to be renewed. 
there for us, reminding us that he is our peace. But Gideon is a man, and he has this high moment, and he gets the courage to do something, which we'll talk about next week, but it's not a complete courage. He's going to need a couple more signs. But in reality, we aren't that much better than Gideon at all. Uh, thankfully, though, our God is greater, and he is our peace, not our, not our actions, okay? Not our faithfulness, but him himself is our peace. So let's pray. Father in heaven, you are our peace. And I know that we are prone to forget that, Lord, especially as the trials and the troubles of the day come before us, especially as the sin that, and the temptation that is in our lives um, overtakes us. But we pray, Lord, that you would, in, in every low moment that we have, remind us of the truths of your word, that you are our peace, that we wouldn't know you if it wasn't for you coming to us first. So help us all to give you glory and honor, for you are worthy of all praise. Please, Lord, help us to meditate upon these things throughout the night, throughout the week, and help us to be ready and excited to, to see what else it is that you have for us in your word on this coming Lord's Day, in our own personal reading, in our own times of prayer, and next Wednesday when we gather again. And we pray this all in your name. Amen.